Welcome to the Republic of the Rio Grande. Episode 7, Zapata Unleashed. I'm Brandon Seal. On November 22nd, 1838, Antonio the Brush Fox Canales and Antonio Sweat of His Brow Zapata met with the centralist colonel commanding government forces near the Rio Grande Vias. Canales and Zapata voiced their grievances against the distant and indifferent central government that had just levied an unconscionable, in their view, tax on the long-suffering citizens of the frontier. They gave the colonel 12 days to do something about it, or else. 12 days later, nothing had changed, however. And so Canales and Zapata pronounced against the centralist government and aligned themselves with other Federalists in Mexico fighting to restore the Constitution of 1824. Antonio Canales and his chief of staff, the fiery José María Carvajal, kicked off the political side of the movement by shoring up their bases in the Rio Grande Vias, which one by one rallied to their side. On December 23rd, Zapata's hometown of Guerrero, which was formerly known as Revilla, openly pronounced. Laredo followed on January 5th, 1839, declaring that, quote, as the present administration does not merit our confidence, this town will continue in the future to act under the constitution of the year 1824 as the only thing that can save the pueblo under the present circumstances, end quote. Reynosa fell into line a few days later. Yet it was Antonio Zapata who turned Canales' war of words into an actual war. Just a few days after Canales' 12-day ultimatum to the centralist colonel had told, Zapata attacked the centralist garrison in Mier and drove them out. Zapata continued on with a force of about 400 men toward Matamoros now. Suddenly, men from the Rio Grande Vias poured into his ranks. The famed Sombrero Mantecoso, Antonio Zapata himself, was on the warpath, and people wanted to be a part of this. Zapata's Federalist Army, if we can start to call it that, soon grew from 400 to 500 to 900 men. Zapata also began to recruit heavily from his network of Native American allies, most notably the Carrizo Indians, who had lived peacefully alongside Spanish and later Mexican residents of the Lower Rio Grande for most of their time there. Present-day Carrizo Indians claimed that Zapata was part Carrizo himself, and their loyalty to him in 1838 lends credence to this claim. The 60 or so Carrizos who joined him would soon grow to almost 200, and they would never waver in their personal attachment to their commander. Over the next few weeks, Zapata's Federalist force surrounding Matamoros grew to over 1,000 men. By contrast, the Centralist garrison in Matamoros numbered only 650 men. Yet the Centralist commander there was no slouch, and neither were the soldiers he commanded. The commander sensed, or suspected, that Zapata's army was not as organized as they might appear to be. And so on January 6th, he ordered his men onto the offensive and attacked Zapata. And the Centralists won, losing only 23 men wounded to Zapata's 18 dead. Then, the Centralists pressed their advantage, meeting Zapata in battle again on January 12th, and once again they defeated him. This wasn't what people had expected from the famed Sombrero Mantecoso. But Zapata was a quick study, and he learned that this was a different kind of war than he'd been used to on the Texas Plains. He realized that his army of vaqueros and Native Americans had neither the firepower nor the training to engage in a set-piece battle with Centralist soldiers. What they had, however, was mobility. 
and a knowledge of the countryside. Zapata decided to turn that to his advantage. He resumed the offensive, but this time he resolved to stay on the move, preferring multiple small targets to concentrated large ones. Something that men like Antonio Zapata had learned over the years of planes warfare was the virtue of attack. The only way to ensure that you wouldn't be surprised by your enemies, in fact, was to surprise them first. And Zapata knew that although the Centralists may have just defeated him on the battlefield, he actually had them pinned down in Matamoros. They didn't dare venture out of the port city, which meant that the great northern capital of Monterrey was cut off from supply by sea, even if they didn't realize it yet. And so, in early February 1839, Zapata joined now by Canales, began marching on Monterey. Centralists in Monterey got word of the Rio Grande Federalist advance and sent out an army to stop them. Whereas before, Zapata had only been tangling with centralist colonels. This time, he won himself the attention of a major general. But Zapata struck the first blow. With only, quote, a few horses, end quote, and presumably only a few men as well, Zapata launched a daring nighttime raid on the major general's camp. He caught the general sleeping, literally, surprising the major general in his quarters and taking him prisoner. Zapata then stampeded the centralist horse herd, leaving his enemies unable to pursue him. In the ensuing confusion, Zapata and his men melted back into the brush and took the centralist general back to Camargo for ransoming. The shocked and demoralized Centralist army tried to pull back to Monterey. Of course, this was slow going since they'd lost most of their horses to the stampede. In fact, it was so slow going that Zapata had enough time to ride to Camargo to deposit his prisoner and then return and hit the stranded Centralist army with a larger force this time on March 13th, 1839. And this time, Zapata won outright. He destroyed the few Centralists that mustered into a line to oppose him and sent the entire force fleeing back in disorder to Monterey. Then, after this victory on March 13th, Zapata got word of another sizable centralist army about 50 miles southeast of Monterey. Without a moment's hesitation, he directed his force toward them, and less than a week later, on March 20th, Zapata surprised and defeated them in battle as well. Zapata was bringing the speed of plains warfare to the Mexican heartland. At his core was a simple strategy. Once he had his enemies on the run, he resolved to never lose contact, to never give them a moment's peace. Frankly, he was employing the strategies of his old Indios Barbaros enemies, like the Lipan Apaches. With a force that never exceeded 200, and more often than not probably numbered close to 25, Zapata had just immobilized three different centralist armies, numbering in the thousands themselves. One he had pinned down back in Matamoros, the other he had kicked back to Monterey, and the third he had just sent packing back for Tampico. Speaking of the Lipan Apaches, however, the Lipanes were carefully watching the tumult going on south of the river, and they sensed Zapata's absence from the Rio Gran Vias. Taking advantage of the turmoil in the region, a force of about 500 or so Lipan Apaches attacked Guerrero, Zapata's hometown, where presumably his four daughters were still living in the most devastating attack on that pueblo since the 1790 raid that had killed Zapata's grandfather. Fifty townspeople in Guerrero were left dead, wounded, or captured, and hundreds of horses and mules had been carried off. The alcalde of Guerrero sent a message to Zapata, 
begging him to come to the town's aid. Which wasn't a huge surprise given Zapata's fame as the greatest Indian fighter in the region. But hearing of this plea, the centralist governor of Nuevo León decided to make political hay out of it. In a local newspaper, he published a rebuke of the alcalde of Guerrero for calling on the aid of a, quote, traitor to defend his villa. Note, however, that what the centralist governor didn't do was send actual forces to reinforce the villas. Zapata, on the other hand, despite being more than 120 miles away, broke off his pursuit of one of the centralist armies and rode at full speed for Guerrero. A few days later, he picked up the trail of the Lipan Apache party, and on March 29th, just a week after he had received the news, he routed the raiding party, who must have been shocked to see Sombrero de Manteca come riding toward them through the brush. Wasn't he supposed to be a couple hundred miles away? In this first engagement, Zapata liberated 17 of his fellow citizens from Lipan captivity, mostly women and children, as well as 111 horses and mules. But just as with his centralist enemies, he didn't let up. He continued pursuing the remnants of the Lipan War Party, catching up to them again one week later northwest of Laredo now, another 75 miles away, and once again whipping them and sending them into flight back up into the Texas Hill Country. After his victory over the Lipanes, Zapata couldn't resist. He published a notice in a Monterey newspaper informing the centralist governor there of this, quote, traitor's service to his fellow citizens, while centralist politicians had done nothing. But the really crazy part for me is that for this entire month that Zapata spent campaigning up in the wild horse desert in South Texas, the centralist armies that he had pinned down in northeastern Mexico still hadn't moved. Which, by the way, infuriated the centralist president, Anastasio Bustamante. On a map in Mexico City, it looked easy. As best as President Bustamante could tell, Zapata didn't have his three centralist armies forked. Zapata was the one surrounded by three armies. President Bustamante decided to take the field himself and finish off the Rio Grande Federalists. Bustamante began pushing up from Mexico City toward Tampico, where in April he routed two other Federalist rebel armies that had been lingering there. That same month, April 1839, the so-called Pastry War finally came to an end. France's overly exuberant attempts to collect on the damages suffered by a French pastry chef near Mexico City hadn't played well in the courts of international opinion. And it didn't help that the port city of Veracruz had managed a spirited defense against a French landing there, led by none other than Mexico's freshly returned prodigal son, Santa Ana. This simultaneously freed up President Bustamante to focus on the northeastern Rio Grande Federalist Revolt, but it also probably motivated him to move closer to the action along the coast, to keep an eye on the ambitions of the ever-intriguing Santa Ana. So in April of 1839, President Bustamante marched north from the capital and made camp in southwest Tamaulipas, adding a fourth army now to the mix. Fifth, I guess, if you count the Lipanes, that Zapata had to worry about. Yet all Zapata saw was another lumbering, isolated target. Zapata selected 50 of his hardest-riding, most trustworthy men and rode south. Way south. He rode clear around President Bustamante's camp, and on May 9th, he struck the town of Soto La Marina, about halfway down the coast of Tampico, and more than 300 miles away from Laredo, where Zapata had last been seen. Bustamante and the centralist commanders were shocked by Zapata's brazenness, and once again, they were paralyzed by his mobility. 
Defying expectations, however, Zapata didn't just melt back into the Tamaulipecan brush. Instead, a week later, he rode straight for Bustamante's camp itself and stampeded the centralist president's own horse herd. The enraged centralist president sent a unit of dragoons after Zapata, who calmly wheeled his small force around and defeated the dragoons in battle on May 24th, once again capturing that unit's commander and taking him along as prisoner when he returned to the Rio Grande Villas at the end of May. President Bustamante was stumped as to what to do next. Chasing Zapata was like chasing the wind, except in this case, the wind hit back. After thinking about it long enough, the president decided that he had more important things to deal with. He returned to Mexico City and split his forces between the Matamoros and Monterey garrisons, leaving everything in between to Zapata. I don't think it's too much to say that Zapata's bold campaign in the spring of 1839 is what made Canales' revolt real. It made what would have otherwise been a lot of flowery words in newspapers an actual threat to the centralist government. And it was Zapata's tactical genius that had made this work. Had Zapata not so effectively paralyzed the area's centralist commanders into an action, they could have easily converged on Canales' disorganized Federalist army and crushed them as easily as they had the other Federalist armies in the region. Instead, Zapata had purchased critical time for Canales and his chief of staff, the little bilingual San Antonian José María Carvajal, to open up the diplomatic channels that they would need to wage a protracted war. Namely, to open up diplomatic relations with the new Republic of Texas. At first, this wasn't an easy thing for Antonio Canales to come around to. Canales was always leery of dealing with the Texians. On good days, he viewed their separation from Mexico two years earlier as a regrettable fait accompli. On bad days, he viewed them as little more than quote-unquote adventurers and cattle thieves. Still, his chief of staff Carvajal made the case to him that Canales and the newly installed Texas president Mirabeau Lamar had a common enemy in the centralist government of Mexico, which still openly claimed Texas and which every spring launched raids into the new republic to test its strength. And Carvajal personally knew that Texians and residents of the Villas del Norte shared important ideological and familial ties. Recall, too, that these events are occurring before the Mexican-American War of 1846-48, an event which ever after would cause Mexicans to view their neighbor to the north as a menacing bully, but prior to which, many northern Mexican Federalists looked quite admiringly on the Anglo-American example and viewed them as natural allies. Texas President Mirabeau Lamar received Canales and Carvajal politely but cautiously. President Lamar knew that intervening in a Mexican civil war was the best way to provoke an invasion from a centralist government that was just itching for an excuse to do so. And so initially, President Lamar declined to formally recognize Canales' revolt, or to require that all Texian trade with Mexico go through the Rio Grande Federalists, as Canales and Carvajal had requested. And yet, wink wink, President Lamar decided he would do nothing to stop Canales and Carvajal from espousing the virtues of their cause should any Texian volunteers wish to join them. Because at his core, Lamar did want to help Canales and Carvajal. The reason may have been more self-serving than ideological, but President Lamar knew that a divided Mexico was a Mexico that wouldn't reinvade Texas. Or better still, 
A divided Mexico might result in a more friendly sister republic along Texas's southern border. Surely Canales and Carvajal could have predicted this train of thought, and so they couldn't have been terribly disappointed with President Lamar's refusal to formally recognize them, but with his tacit support in terms of resources and manpower for their cause. Especially after they saw how well their recruitment efforts went. Now, they benefited from the fact that the economy of the Republic of Texas was in shambles in 1839. The Texas dollar had fallen to three cents on the U.S. dollar, and the Panic of 1837 had left the U.S. dollar in pretty poor shape as well, which meant that Texas was full of a lot of poor and desperate men. In those circumstances, Canales' promise of 2,200 acres per man plus $25 a month got a lot of attention. And sure enough, Texians started to enlist. In recruiting Texians into their army, however, Canales and Carvajal were making a bit of a Faustian bargain. It was one thing to oppose an unpopular centralist government, but it was quite another to dialogue with the leaders of a breakaway state that Mexico didn't officially recognize. And it didn't help either that to elites in Mexico City, there was already an otherness to Zapata and his Federalist insurgents, before even adding in a bunch of Texian adventurers. Centralist government newspapers called Zapata and his men a chusma de ladrones, a mob of thieves, but there's also an unmistakable class and even racial tinge to the word chusma. Because in truth, Zapata's chusma looked a lot like him, mulatto, mestizo, and Indian. Though even more offensive to centralist elites, it seems, was this chusma's usurpation of the centralist's quote-unquote rightful authority to tax and requisition goods from the citizenry. Of course, Zapata could have responded to their challenges with his own questions. Why was it thievery when he used funds from the local treasuries, or requisitioned supplies from, in many cases, willing citizens, versus being something legitimate when somebody from the center did it? What was the difference? The color of his uniform? The color of his skin? I mean, hell, if there was a difference it was that Zapata actually did seem to take the time to deliver a service in exchange for his taxes, namely, his own personal defense of the towns under his watch. And in addition to their defense of the frontier, Rio Grande Federalists also stood up the first reliable postal system in the region since colonial times, evidence of a real desire to govern, not just to disrupt. But of course, we're talking about propaganda here, not facts. And the point is that you're already starting to hear centralists two main lines of attack that they'll use against Zapata and Canales, namely, that the Rio Grande Federalists were little better than bandits, cloaking their lawlessness with a thin veil of Federalist ideology, and two, that the Rio Grande Federalists were traitors, conspiring with Texian adventurers to tear their country apart. And ironically, or perhaps by design, the more that centralist newspapers repeated that last line, the more it became true. The more that centralists accused Canales and Zapata of being in bed with the Texians, the harder it became for them to find allies and recruits within Mexico, and the more that Canales and Zapata were forced to turn to the Texians for support. On the next episode of The Republic of the Rio Grande. Thank you for listening. In February of 2022, We'll be conducting almost a month's worth of fieldwork to uncover archaeological evidence for the location of the Battle of Medina, the largest battle in Texas history. 
If you want to learn more about the battle, go back and listen to season two of this series. If you want to learn more about our search and our partnership with the 501c3 American Veterans Archaeological Recovery Project, go to www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. The portrait of Antonio Zapata that serves as the cover art for this season was created by artist Matt Tumlinson. Check him out at Matt underscore Tumlinson on Instagram. Sound engineering for this episode was performed by Stephen Bennett, who also arranged and performed the theme music. The theme music was actually written, however, by Mercurio Martinez, a Zapata County rancher, county treasurer, school principal, and descendant of one of Escandon's founding families. Martinez was the co-author of the first history of Zapata County, which he titled The Kingdom of Zapata. And in his spare time, he penned Corridos. Well, I found one of his corridos in his collected papers at Texas A&M's Cushing Library, and in that corrido, Martinez had written a melody that he had intended for his Corrido de la Presa, the story of the construction of Lake Falcón and of his role in preserving what he could of the communities later lost to the lake. I love that we've been able to bring back to life this melody here, and I thank Stephen for it. You can check out Stephen's work at Noso Media. That's N-O-S-O-Media.com. I want to call out here for recognition the work of Juan Jose Gallegos. A retired NASA engineer, Gallegos went back to get a master's in history from the University of Houston and produced an incredible thesis dedicated to the life of Antonio Zapata, which in part inspired this season. Thanks as well to Professor Stan Green at Texas A&M University in Laredo. Professor Green actually has a book coming out soon about these events and others, currently titled Las Vías del Norte, A History from 1748 to 1821. Definitely don't miss the Museum of the Republic of the Rio Grande in downtown Laredo if you're ever there. They have brand new exhibits that they've just opened telling more of the story that we're recounting here. And if you're interested in the history or genealogy of the Vías del Norte, check out Moises de la Garza's website, lasviasdelnorte.com. Thanks additionally to Cesarino Hosa, my touring buddy for these old towns in Mexico, and descendant himself of some of the first founders of the Lower Rio Grande. And thank you to Javier Cervantes with the Tatilan Coahuilteca Nation and Juan Mancias with the Carrizo Come Crudo Nation for their guidance too. For more information generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.